This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. It's 4 o'clock. You're listening to AM 630 The Word. That means I must be Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart or mind, all you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you're doing great today. Um, We've been here and busy, so I hope that's been the case for you as well. And we look forward to your phone calls. Nothing to talk about on Tuesdays except go right to the question. So Gene wants to know, why is there going to be a need for a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the thousand-year reign? Um, Gene, when God makes his home, you know one of, the, one of the most endearing truths in our scripture is when we are told that um, God never calls himself at home until he's with us at the end. And wherever God is, there's got to be perfection. And what we're going to see is a new heaven and a new earth. The new earth will be like the earth when it was created in all of its splendor, and God said it was good, and then he made man and said, now it's very good. And a new heaven uh, is going to be necessary simply because um, we're going to be able to go back and forth to heaven. I, I just love the fact that we can be somewhere uh, for eternity. We can be with Jesus. We can be in Jerusalem where he's ruling from the throne of David. We can. There's just no end to what we can do. So this is a matter of cleansing, Gene. Uh, everything has to be perfect for God. And um, when a new heaven and a new earth, no fallen angel access, no Satan access, everything will be brand new. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Let's go to... Uh, my friend Tanya from San Leandro, California, on line one. Tanya, thanks for calling. You are on the air. Hi, Papa. How you been? I've been well. How are you? I am good. Um, I good. have a question. Um, I encountered uh, somebody, and, and I'm fairly certain it was dishonest questioning, yet I wanted mm-hmm. to still be able to answer the question. And I had an individual today. Uh, asked me, where is Jacob buried? And 
So I went to Genesis, and then um, I, the person replied back saying, well, in Acts, Stephen said that he's buried, in, um, and the person gave another area and just started saying that the Bible is filled with contradictions, and I know that it's not at all. And, and so I was trying to research uh, what was going on with the Genesis account of where they say Jacob is buried, where he says he wants to be buried. I think it was Canaan, and then looking in Acts chapter 7, and I was hoping you could... What I found was people were saying that the actual the actual transcripts potentially could have been uh, that they were not translated properly or something to that effect. So I wanted to kind of get some clarification. I was a little confused, but the person was completely just very argumentative and not even wanting to hear, you know, what it, what the correct answer would be if I would have had the right answer at the time. So I was hoping you could clear up some of that for me, if possible. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the best I can, Tanya. You're right. It, it, it's dishonest questioning. And, um, you know, when people only point to contradictions that they've heard other unbelievers point to, um, you know, it's just one of those, one of those, things that they have never checked for themselves. And um, you, you know me well. I, I always tell people when people stop listening, then we stop talking. Now, in terms of where Jacob is buried, in Acts chapter 7, um, their bodies were brought back to check place in a tomb. Um, this is verse 16. Uh, their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Uh, I think that's pretty definitive. Jacob's tomb uh, is going to be uh, in that place in Shechem, um, and the, the 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 tomb was bought for a certain sum of money. We don't know what the amount of money was, um, but um, that's exactly where where they were placed. Now. Um, I don't know. I have really never done any historical research. Uh, the question's never come up before. Um, but but here's the thing that we, we need to be able to tell people, Tanya. When somebody says, well, that's a contradiction, say, well, where is the contradiction? Where does it say a, a, a contradictory place? If, if there was a place in the Bible that said uh, Jacob's body was buried in New York, we could say that's a contradiction. But the problem is that person who's arguing with you is not going to be able to tell you that there is a contradiction at all. Um, Stephen, in the book of Acts, uh, gives us additional information. Remember, he was uh, preaching, prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and he, was, he was giving us additional information, not just here, but with some of the other people's lives that he mentioned. I mean, his mission in Acts chapter 7 is to give a, a history, the most complete history of Israel ever given. And so it's extra information. And I always liken it, Tanya, to um, um, when, when the gospel accounts will say, in, in one account it will say there were two angels at the tomb of Jesus, and then another one will say there was, uh, refers to an angel at the tomb of Jesus. That's not contradictory information. It's just one account is giving you more information than the other one is. And, uh, you know, if, if, if one said there was only one angel and the other said, no, there were two angels, that would be a contradiction. But that's not what it says. The same thing is true in Acts chapter 7. So um, uh, I'll make it a point tomorrow to try to do a little bit of homework. Um, Genesis 50 says, um, Jacob's son did as he commanded. They carried him to the land of Canaan. Well, Shechem was in Canaan. 
and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah. So, um, I don't have a, a an atlas here or, or or Bible maps to tell how that was, but it was in in the land of Canaan, and that's exactly um, that's not inconsistent with what um, Joseph said. I'm gonna or what uh, Stephen said. I'm gonna try to find um, a, a map between now and tomorrow. Uh, Tanya and and see uh, where those places line up. But the one thing that we know is it's not a contradiction. One other thing that we need to really understand here, when people talk about their contradictions, it's been interpreted wrongly. That's what Mormons will always tell you. Um, Yeah, we believe in the Bible insofar as it's been correctly translated. And of course, they believe that the only correct translation is Joseph Smith's, the only real revelation uh, a, Jehovah, a Jehovah's Witness would tell you that they need to be uh, listen to the Watchtower and and accept the Watchtower's translation. But um, what is really clear is that a man that or this person that you're talking to um, hasn't read it at all. And so I typically just my style. I don't spend time um, talking about contradictions with people who haven't read the Bible. I challenge him to read it. I tell him about Jesus, and then I let the Holy Spirit have his way. If they're not going to believe, there's nothing that we can do to make them believe. I know that's frustrating because we like to know the answers, um, but the answers you find a real contradiction in Scripture, and then we'll talk about it. This isn't one of them. Sorry, Tanya, you can't do better, but I'll try to do a little bit of research Tomorrow, I'm not seeing well enough to look up for uh, uh, for the maps today in a quick period of time. So thank you. We miss you. Here is a question from Christine. Christina, I'm sorry, Christina. Since I'm a Christian, can the devil influence my mind or thoughts? Christina, he can. Um, he can't read your mind. Um, you know, God can. God knows everything. The devil doesn't. But we know that the supernatural power of Satan is such that he can influence our thoughts. He incited David, it says in in Chronicles, to to number the fighting troops of Israel. He's the one who planted that seed in the mind of David. Um, He's always bringing evil and wicked thoughts. So yeah, they can influence your mind or thoughts, but we need to remember that, that we've got the mind of Christ. And if we know the word of God, then we don't have to fall for the lies of the enemy. He's always been from the Garden of Eden on. He did it when he was tempting Jesus directly in the wilderness after 40 days of no food and water. He's always trying to twist scripture. But because we have the true, pure word of God, we don't have to be uh, victims of his influence. Take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ, Paul says. And so um, we're we're not helpless. Uh, All we have to do is know the Word, be in the Word, walk in the Spirit. And whatever the devil tries to do in your your mind or how he tries to influence your thoughts, um, just don't have any part of it. Partner with Jesus instead of partnering with him. Uh, Christina, it's always kind of unsettling to know that he can um, influence our mind or our thoughts. He can bring these ugly thoughts into uh, our our minds. But 
Um, we don't have to be afraid of him. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that, of course, is a reference to Satan himself. Thank you for the question. Let's take a call from our friend Ruben from Seguin on line one. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Um, may I say something really quick to Christine if she's listening? Sure. Um, take it uh, from me, Christine. Pastor Ron could tell you over the past seven years that I've known him just over the radio, not in person yet, but one day I will. Um, the enemy will try to come and put all kinds of things in your mind, especially when the body is at its most vulnerable point. But one thing I've learned, and I'm learning right now, is to stick to the Word of God. Stick strictly to what the Word of God says. Ruben, you, you, you've, been an ex, you've been an expert on this kind of a battle, haven't you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I have battle <laughs> scars. But you know what? Those battle scars, I wear them like badges now. Uh, this past month has been tragic for me with death and sickness and illness and, you know, but... The enemy has has come to me, and he has he has tried to put suicidal thoughts in me and tell tell me that nobody loves you and that you're not worth it. And how could God have a calling on your life? And look what you've been through for these past seven years: sicknesses and illnesses and, and death and and all. You know, why would you serve a God like that? And I used to answer him back, but now I'm, I don't even answer him. I don't even pay attention to him. Because he's nothing but a liar. Like Pastor Ron just said, greater is he that is in me than the one that's in the world. And with with that, I uh, just want to take a quick minute to thank everybody, all of your listeners and all your church members that have been praying for me. I know that it is through their prayers that my strength is getting stronger. Of course, all glory be to God, but I know that the prayer warriors that are praying for me are helping me, even though they don't know me, and I want to thank them. I want to thank them very much from the bottom of my heart. And in the middle of all this that I've been going through, I've just been sticking to the Word of God. So I have a question for you about the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. As you know, I've read the Bible one time through, and I'm on my second time through it. I'm in the book of Ezekiel right now. A powerful, powerful book. Wow. Um, I have a question about sixteen, uh, chapter sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen. Would you say that those are parallels uh, to like times that we're living in today, and could we use them as, you know, warnings, a warning from God, like He was telling His children, He was reminding them. Well, you know, you know, 16, and he kept reminding them, this is what I did for you, and this is what I did for your ancestors, you know, and this is what I'm going to do to you. But then he said, but you know what? I'm going to hold my grace back. So my question is, could I, would it be decent, uh, not decent, would it be accurate to say that we could draw parallels to the way that the Christian Christendom today is going versus the way it was going then? When Ezekiel wrote this, or when God revealed yeah. it to Ezekiel. Wow, great question, Reuben. Hey, and by, before I forget, uh, you, you sound physically like you're feeling better? I am. I am. Oh, I didn't tell you. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I came back negative. I no longer oh, have... Oh, praise the Lord. 
praise. I have no longer had. I completely forgot. I'm so sorry. I no longer have corona. As a matter of fact, my doctor urged me to give blood and convalescent uh, plasma good. to give to those that are fighting this coronavirus, good, good, good. which I'm going to do. Praise the Lord. And then how's your dad doing? He is good. He is going to be sent to Hondo, to Memorial Hospital in Hondo, which is a it's a dual hospital. It's a rehab and a and a hospital hospital. Uh, they're going to send them. They just called me this morning, and they're going to send them. Try to send them today, if not today, tomorrow morning. They were just waiting for his okay. insurance to come back. And praise the Lord, he's come back twice negative with the virus. Good, 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 good. Thank you, Ruben. Let me get to your question now. Um, Ruben, one of the things that we understand uh, from the Old Testament prophets, particularly Ezekiel, and you're absolutely right, it is a magnificent book, one of the most one of the two most difficult books in all of Scripture to teach, I, I think, along with Zechariah. But but wonderful, wonderful truth there. Um, we have applications that we can take from, from the Old Testament prophets, but we have to be careful not to confuse what's going on in the church in the United States or even what's going on in the, in the United States with this, because this is very specifically directed to the people of Israel, the obstinate, stubborn, willful, sinful people of of um, Israel. That's why in, in the second verse of, of uh, Ezekiel, this chapter uh, 16, it says, Son of Man, that was Ezekiel's favorite title, by the way, uh, also happened to be Jesus' favorite title. He says, Confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. So here's, here's what he's saying. What he's saying very simply is that this is um, um, a lifestyle that is going to have to be judged. Now, remember when Ezekiel was prophesying, Ezekiel was uh, a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was sort of stationed in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was taken away um, in the um, dispersion to Babylon. Um, their, their period of prophecy was almost the same, uh, and neither of them had much success in converting anybody. And that's why God didn't say, Go save people. Go tell them the gospel. He just said, go confront them with their detestable practices. They knew they were sin. And and they were flaunting their sin in the face of God. And so these three chapters are God simply saying to them, you let them know because of this, this is what the result is going to be. Now, the application for us, Reuben, is that um, we can't say to America as a nation, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, America is not God's nation. Uh, What we can say is directed at Christians in America, and we can say these are the things that God says are going to happen. We need to be ready for them, and we need to be about our business. And um, I think the applications are monumentally important, but the truth of the matter is, is, is we have to be really, really careful when we're talking about applying a word given to an Old Testament prophet for Israel and saying, well, well, you know, I, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. 
Uh, that's not for us. That's God's people is Israel. Now, the principle is if God's people, Christians, would humble themselves and pray, then God could use us to accomplish wonderful things. The truth of the matter here for the United States is that we are so far away from God. I've got a question. I'm going to help uh, deal with this a little bit more in a minute. But we're so far away from God that we can't even hear his voice as believers. Now, individually, I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking as a whole. And Reuben, if you want to know why the church is so impotent, the reason is because we don't seek after God any more than Israel did, even after judgment began to fall. And the problem, of course, is that when we're not seeking after God, we're left on our own, and we just don't do very well when that's the case. Reuben, wonderful here that you're doing better. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Jonathan. He says, uh, Pastor, I went to a prophecy update at my church, and the pastor said the pandemic is a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. Do you agree that this is a judgment from God because of abortion and homosexuality and the rioting that's going on? Um, Jonathan, I'm I'm very skeptical of prophecy updates. Um, You know, when a guy, uh, a pastor... Is reading the Bible with one hand and reading the newspaper with the other hand. I think we get really, really confused. And then we cross some of those lines that was telling Reuben about where we apply something that was intended directly and specifically for Israel, and then we, we kind of grab it. Um, we don't need prophecy updates. Uh, if you're teaching through the Bible, you're going to talk about the return of Jesus over and over and over. So... Is God angry because of the abortion numbers, because of gay marriage, because of all this insanity that's going on? Well, of course he is. He's grieved deeply by sin. But this is not, this pandemic is not a judgment from God. And any prophecy teacher who would say it is, is misrepresenting God. Now, There is a difference between something being sent by God and God using that something. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And I think the good God is trying to do with this pandemic is call people, his people, back to him. And frankly, we have become so complacent, so melancholy in our faith. We lack passion. We lack commitment. We've let so much of the world rub off on us. We, we simply don't have any power. So here's what I think, and this is, this is the only application to the church relative to the time that we live in in the United States of America. I believe, Jonathan, with all my heart, that we had as a nation, not that we were ever a Christian nation, but we had sort of God's hand of blessing and protection over us. I believe that as much as I believe anything. The strength that we were able to garner, the, 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 the unlikely victories, the, the battles, the civil war that tore this nation apart, World War I, the war to top all wars, only to be taught by World War II, all of those things could have destroyed us. But God's hand was on us, and I believe it was on us because we were his chosen tool to 
set the table for Israel, for Jews, to be able to get back into their homeland in 1948. And after that, we were their major support. We were their defender in the world. And when that happens, Jonathan, God is pleased. We're doing what he left us here to do. We've stopped doing that. We've stopped doing that. And I then believe that God has removed that hand of protection and hand of blessing. I think that's why we see every night on the news, and I'm not an every night in the news person, but we see our our nation being devastated bit by bit, now in bigger and bigger chunks. We see things that we can't even imagine. People just can't even think. We have been given over to our reprobate minds. It's because we have lost our way as a nation in supporting Israel, in having a veneer, at least, of godliness. And I think it's time to pay the price. I think it's time to pay the price. Jonathan, things are going to get really, really hard. And rather than going to prophecy updates, I would suggest you read the book of Philippians. I would suggest that you read Second Timothy, especially chapter 3. I would suggest that you read the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Because all of those churches were dealing with the same kind of things. Thank you for the question, Jonathan. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left and we'd love your calls. 340-9585. Tanya, I know you're still listening. Um, we, as quickly as I could, went to the maps and um, Shechem, uh, is between Hebron and Jerusalem in Canaan. Machpelah is in that area. So there's no contradiction there at all. Uh, he was buried in Canaan, as as it would have been referred to in the book of Genesis. Um, Stephen just gave us more and more specific information uh, that is consistent, completely consistent with the, the Genesis chapter 50. Um, description. So, hope that helps. It really, really helps to have a Bible study program with maps attached to it. Thank you, Tanya. I hope that helps you. Um, Rod says, at what age should we start sharing Jesus with our kids? When can they understand? Uh, Rod, out out of the womb, out of the womb, one of the great things that I get the privilege of doing here at Calvary Chapel, we, we have so many babies over the years, and, you know, um, um, I think after this quarantine, we're going to have a bunch more. 
But um, when the when the mom and the dad bring the baby, brand new baby to me, I have this routine. Always with mom's permission, dad's permission. I say, can I take a walk with him? And I don't walk far away, but I just walk around. I just want to be alone with the baby. And they always respond because they know my voice. They've been listening to my voice uh, from the time they were conceived. They know my voice. And they calm down, and I get right in their ear, and I pray. I pray that there'll never be a moment in their life where through mom and dad they don't know the love of Jesus. I pray that Jesus will be proudly declared in their home, that they'll be able to look at mom and dad as Jesus and know there's something so special, so attractive about him that when this child, and I always say it this way, when you recognize that you're a sinner and you're in trouble, that you will come to mommy and daddy's Jesus. So I think we start sharing Jesus right away. Now, you know your children, Rod, and I don't. But here's... I, I don't really recommend children's Bibles. You know, the the little summary Bible stories, the Veggie Tales stuff in book form. Um, tell them the stories. Use your voice. Tell them the stories. We have children in our nursery. They're being prayed for in that nursery. They're being talked to. They're being held. And the Holy Spirit uses His Word. So, start sharing out of the womb. Now, as to when can they understand, that's different with every kid. I got a five-year-old superstar named Nathan who knows more about the Bible than most of the adults in my church. And that's not a knock on the adults. This kid just knows. He gets it. And he can share stories. He can share details. He gets it. So he's five. Maybe he just turned six. But, but he's, he's able to understand. So it's different for all kids. So that's what I would suggest. Just let the Lord have his way with your child. Let's go to Lester calling on line one from San Antonio. Lester, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Pastor Ron, you're a man of a lot of wisdom. God bless oh, you. Oh, bless your heart. Bless oh, your heart, man. Lester. I'm happy. My, I was reading uh, Matthew, the 17th chapter, and Jesus' tri- transfiguration. And it said mm. he took Peter, James, and Jen up to the mountain. And you might know more about it than I do. And I was reading around 11 o'clock last night, and I was, I just couldn't wait to call you today. I couldn't sleep last night because I know if anybody got all the wisdom, like, I just want to hear more about the trick figure and, and what mountain that they was on. Oh, bless your heart. Well, the, the mountain's name is the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, there's all kinds of mountains and hills spread throughout the area. And this was a very, very special um, opportunity when Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, um, and led them up that mountain. And when it says, that we, we can't imagine this. It says he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Mark's gospel says that his clothes became whiter than any bleach could possibly bleach them. 
And then all of a sudden, Jesus in all of his glory. Now remember, in the last, the chapter before this, Jesus has just said, after uh, talking about uh, what's going to happen with his second coming, he says the last verse of, of chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, in all of the Gospels, the transfiguration immediately follows that verse. So this was the opportunity for James, John, and Peter to see the kingdom of God with their own eyes. They saw the absolute holiness of God, the blinding holiness of God. And um, this story is so important because... um, The purpose of the visit of Moses and Elijah was to tell Jesus about the things that were going to happen to him in Jerusalem, about his crucifixion, about his death. Um, The mount was probably Mount Tabor, but that's only tradition. We don't know that for sure. Uh, It's in Lower Galilee, um, but, but the mountain has always been known, better known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And that was where... God sent Moses and Elijah. By the way, they're going to be the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11 as well. And when he sent them, it was to tell Jesus about the betrayal, to tell Jesus about his beating, about his crucifixion, about the denial of Peter, about how all the the apostles, the, the disciples who would be apostles would scatter. So, they were sent with a message. And of course, you know the story. Lester Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And and as soon as he started talking, Peter always had his foot in his mouth. Uh, there was a voice from heaven. Out of the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud that enveloped them. And the voice of the Father said, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. That was an incident. And you can read Peter's epistle, both First and Second Peter, and you can read especially First John. Um, that incident stayed with Peter and John for the rest of their lives. It was a profound moment for them, Lester, a moment that changed them forever. Peter says, we saw him on that mountain. And I absolutely love that story. So, Lester, I hope that what you were looking for. Thank you for calling. It's always good to hear from you. Here is a question from Danny. He says, Pastor Ron, I know you teach verse by verse. How do you make it relevant to the things going on in our world today, doing it that way? Well, Danny, I don't think there's any other way to make it relevant. Remember, the word is living and active. Um, You know, when I'm teaching the Bible, I hope what I'm accomplishing is telling people what it says, what it means, But then I want them to know how to use it when they go home that day. And there's just so much going on. I'll give you an example. I'm teaching out of Genesis 15 on Wednesdays last week uh, and and, uh, tomorrow. And uh, you, you can't help but to make it relevant to the things that are going on today. You can't help but make it relevant. There's just... The Bible is so alive that everything that you're teaching, there will be an application uh, I've never been asked the question the way you asked it, Denny, but I've been asked before, how do I share the gospel if I'm just teaching the Bible systematically verse by verse? 
And the other, the, the answer to that other question is that, that I've never had any problem sharing the Bible. I find the, go- or the gospel, I find the gospel on every verse in the Bible. Every passage of scripture doesn't have to say this is the gospel, but it's always there. And the reason is because the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. The law and the prophets, Jesus had testified of me. So um, I, I, I hope I'm doing my job well and making it relevant, but I don't know how you can make it relevant any other way. Now, I'm beginning to enjoy some people who are more topical in their preaching, uh, Dr. Tony Evans um, most notably, uh, and, and I love what he does with application, but sometimes when you're teaching topically, you have to sort of twist the passage of Scripture so that you can want to make the point that you want to make in the message. And I, I never think that's an effective way of doing it. Uh, it's always there. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from Emily. Pastor Ron, if no animals are going to be in heaven, what about the horses in Revelation chapter 19? Um, the, the book of Revelation is a book of images. Um, the idea there, and it's very Jewish in its construct, and Jews would have understood this. In fact, uh, this is the same reason the Jews were so disappointed in Jesus when he came in the triumphal entry. In times of war, kings rode horses. That's where we get the phrase war horses. In times of peace, they rode donkeys. And that was just the the way of the world back then. So when Jews wanted their Christ to come, they wanted him on a horse. When he showed up fulfilling scripture on a donkey, they knew that what he said, I haven't come to judge the world, but that through me the world might be saved, was true. They didn't want the world to be saved. They wanted Rome to be gone. So all of that to say, the, 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 the revelation story in chapter 19 about Jesus coming riding a white horse. The white is a symbol for holiness. The horse is the war horse. In other words, this time he's coming back to make war. I don't think we're, we're talking about literal horses here. I've said many times on this program that every symbol in Revelation is given to us and explained in the Old Testament. And so this is just a metaphor. Jesus won't need a horse to come back. But when he comes, he's coming to make war, to set things right, to judge a world that's rejected him. So I don't think literal horses, Emily, at all, but figuratively, he's coming to make war. hope that answers your question. Um, Tim says, this is a card question. I never know how to answer these. Tim says, has your leadership style changed over your years at Calvary Chapel? What advice would you give to young leaders in the church? Um, Tim, yes, my my leadership style has changed. My teaching style has changed. Um, I have found, and Paula actually makes note of them, I've found that my teaching style uh, has actually changed a whole bunch of times over the years. Now, uh, a couple of things. I'm visually impaired. And so I can't read like I used to write. I can't see my notes when I'm preaching. So as my eyes have gotten steadily worse, uh, my teaching style has been changed. Well, relative to my leadership style, um, at the beginning I kind of felt like I had to do everything. Um, I was probably too hard on some people, um, telling people, you know, you can't quit, you just can't quit. God doesn't quit. And yet, God is more gracious than I was. Um, 
I'd probably give people more space in order to make their own decisions and then have to wrestle with God. Uh, I love people so much, and especially the people that I've served with for such a long time. It so breaks my heart when they're making bad decisions. Um, at the beginning, I, I tried to keep them from making bad decisions. That's not my job. That's Jesus' job. So certainly that is a uh, leadership style change. Uh, another one, Tim, has been, um, you know, we are a church in, in, in a long-term transition. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. I'm not ready to retire. But I'm old. I'm 69. I, you know, three and a half years ago now, I, I went through uh, dangerous heart issues that uh, this came uh, suddenly. And, and, and we had to start making some plans for transition. Pastor Ken, uh, who has been with me now, I think, for 13 or 14 years, 14 years, um, um, God has been preparing him. And so I've been preparing him to eventually uh, take over for me. And uh, that means I have delegated more. Uh, I haven't stopped working. I haven't slowed down in the amount of work that I do. But um, I'm just giving him some, some opportunities to, to, um, to stretch out, you know, and, and, and sort of be grounded in, in a, a leadership style. Um, so, uh, yeah, my leadership style has changed. As to advice that I would give to young leaders in the church, um, I think that would be pretty simple. Uh, preach the word. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Um, Paul was preparing Timothy, preach the word. Uh, your opinion doesn't matter. Preach the word. I would also tell them they got to learn to love the people, even the people that hurt them. One thing that's true for every pastor is that pastor gets hurt a lot by people who once said they loved him. I can't tell you, Tim, how many people have sworn undying love for me and undying loyalty to me only when I did something that they didn't like to turn and run on me and and just desert me. And, you know, people that really love you don't just leave. We reconcile issues. We... We, we run back to God and say, look, is this where you want me instead of just running away? Um, so I, I would tell them two things. Preach the word and love the people. And then the last thing I would say is make sure that everything you ask of them, they have already seen you do. You can't ask people to serve. You can't ask people to give. You can't ask people to make sacrifices if they're not watching you do it as well. And I have been so blessed by the, 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 the young men. Not so young anymore. When, when we met them, they were young. But as we grow older together, uh, I have been blessed with some of the greatest men and their wives and their families. Um, one of the delights of my life is sharing my life, my heart, and my Jesus with these men and women who become sons and daughters to me. So that would be my advice. Preach the word. Oh, I'm going to give you one more. One more. Preach the word. Love the people. Set an example. And then finally walk by faith. You can't teach what you don't do. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I encourage uh, all of our leaders to, to get out on that ledge. It's a risky place. But to get out on that ledge with Jesus, because when you are really, really afraid, that's the place 
where Jesus smiles the most? Thank you for that question. Let's go to a place called Spicewood, Texas now and talk with Robert on line one. Robert, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Good to hear it from you and good to always listen to your show when I get a chance. Thanks, hey, Robert. We were we were uh, having a Bible study in our home last night and a question came up. Just It's out of uh, Matthew 27, um, the end part of that chapter where it's talking about the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in particular, verses 52 and 53, they're like inserted into the, it, where it talks about the bodies coming out of the graves. Yeah. So all the verses leading up to that are talking about his actual death. And then the verses after that, starting at 54, is the centurion saying, surely this was the Son of God. But when it talks about the bodies coming out of the grave, it says they came out after his resurrection. I'm just wondering about the timing of that, because everything else is associated with his death right there. You understand what I'm like, the question I'm trying to ask yeah. you is why... Why does it yeah, say I, that they came out after his resurrection? Did they come out right as he died, or did they come out three yeah. days later when after he rose? Yeah, you, you know this is a, this is a, 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 a very inconspicuous detail that only Matthew gives, and people have been trying for centuries to figure out Matthew, why did you uh, include this, and what are we supposed to do with it? Um, so here's what we know. If you look at the passage literally for what it says, um, it says, at the moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two, this is verse 51, from top to bottom, or at that moment, that moment was when Jesus cried out and said, it was finished. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, a great earthquake, and the rock split. Now, we know when that happened, right when Jesus said, it is finished. Then it says in the next verse, the tombs broke open again at the same time when the earth shook and the rocks split and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And evidently, Robert, what they did was just stay there. Now, I I wouldn't have any difficulty with that. Can you imagine what it would be. It's, it's not like they were walking around in the city or anything and people were watching them. These are righteous people, people that were looking forward to the... It, it's almost like a, an, a, an announcement to Jews. And and it says, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and then they came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So, they came out of the tombs That means they would have been seen by other people. And then three days later, or on the third day, not actually three 24-hour days later, but on the third day, after the resurrection, they went in the holy city and they appeared to many people. And clearly, the context suggests that they were declaring the victory over death. They were declaring the, 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 the arrival of the Messiah. This was the Christ. You put him to death. One of the things that this, to me, indicates... It was God's way of readying the people. Remember, on the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, which would be 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, um, it says 3,000 men were pricked in their hearts. 
And I think these men who came out of the tombs after the resurrection of Jesus, they went in the holy city and they appeared to many people. They were telling people. And I think as, as mind-blowing as that experience would be, I think when Peter preached that message in Acts chapter 2, they would immediately be drawn back to the message that was given by those holy people who appeared to many people. You know what I like thinking about, Robert? Uh, it doesn't say who they were. It just says they were holy people. Um, many righteous people, another translation says they died. It doesn't tell us if they were the righteous dead from the far past. I mean, think about it. This could have been the body of Abraham. This could have been the body of Joseph. Could have been the body of Moses. God had hid his, his body. So we don't know. It could have been just righteous people who died recently. So we don't know. We have no information. But I can promise you this. When they appeared to many people in the city, into Jerusalem, that would have been one of the most effective evangelists experience in the history of the world. But beyond that, we don't have any other detail. But what we can say is the tombs broke open at the moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two, the moment Jesus gave up his spirit. Uh, The bodies were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs. They would have stayed there, but they came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, that's when they went into the city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. I love thinking about that verse. I get lots and lots of questions about it, but only Matthew. That's how obscure it is. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. I'm being told that Spicewood is about six miles southeast of Marble Falls. Well, you're not too far. Come and visit us sometime, Robert. It would be great to see you. Here is, let me see, our last call or last question of the day. Uh, Hank wants to know, why does there seem to be way less demonic activity uh, or and demonic possession now than in the Bible times. Uh, Hank, I've only got two minutes, so I'll make this really, really quick. Um, I think it seems like there's less to us because of the time and the area that we live. We live in a place where there's the light of Christ everywhere, thousands and thousands of churches, churches on every corner. People know about the the, the Lord. People know the Word of God. So, Um, This isn't a place that's very fruitful for demons. But there are places in the world, and I've been to some of these places, and I've talked to a lot of guys who have been places. I'm not a big traveler, so they've been to other places. And their demonic activity is everywhere in those dark, dark places where the light of Christ isn't really predominant. Tell you one other thing, Hank. I think there's a whole bunch more demon possession even in this nation than we would give credit for it. And I think we go into our institutions, our insane asylums, our um, mental health uh, clinics. I I think you'd see repeatedly people that are demon-possessed and it's explained away by, by them being mentally insane or simply mentally deficient in one way or another. So, Hank, I think that's the reason. But believe me, the demons are just as busy and they're going to get actually busier in these last days before the Lord comes. Thank you very much for the question. Well, there's the music, our outro. Uh, Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Fall more in love with Jesus. 
best choice you ever made. I'll see you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,